All right. Uh, hey, over the last several weeks, we've actually been in a sermon series in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is actually a historical book of a real figure that lived named Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to the king of Persia, uh, and is able to go back to his homeland, which he had never seen or experienced before, and yet be part of this group that had been in exile, a kind of a persecuted minority, to now all of a sudden going back to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so we've actually been looking at his whole, whole journey of rebuilding the wall, of galvanizing and leading a group against all sorts of uh, opposition against different nation states and regions outside of them, as well as some of the conflict that would emerge from within. And uh, we talked about how Nehemiah is able to lead through all the ups and downs of that journey into this incredible way of rebuilding the wall. We talked about a worship service that's done as a way of orienting their lives now, of recommitting themselves. And last week we talked about kind of this endeavor. After the wall has been rebuilt, there's this worship service that's been set, and then this covenant is made, and at this covenant, we talked about this last week. The people of God basically make this commitment. They say, God, now that we've done this work, we really want to commit to following you. And we talked about what does that look like for us to be a people who, who covenant with God, to say, God, I want you to be at the center of my life. I want to shy away from the center so that everything that's part of me, my, my prayers, my ambitions, my money, my time, everything is oriented around you. And it's with that that we now come to this passage where after the worship service, this covenant has been made, this commitment's been made. And look at what it says. It says this. It says, now the leaders of the people, they settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten of them to live in Jerusalem. The holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. So do you see what's happening here? There's a group of people now that are being selected and actually volunteering now to live in Jerusalem. Now you gotta think, like the people, they've actually lived in exile for many years. They, know, they don't know what it's like to live in Jerusalem. And yet there's this group. Now that the wall has been rebuilt and now the rebuilding process takes place, the difficult task of governance and rebuilding the city is now in play. And look at what it says. It says, the, the people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. In other words, the people that said, I'm down for it. I'm ready, no matter the cost that it might cost me to be a person who actually grew up in Persia and lived in Persia and knows the ways of what it's like to live in Persia. I volunteer to live in Jerusalem to be part of the renewal work that's happening here in rebuilding this city. Now, as I was thinking about kind of this, this moment, right, because the people are commended for it, it says, uh, I was actually thinking of this passage in, in John chapter 1, verse 14. It's from the message version. Now, check out this translation. Look at what it says. It's talking about Jesus here and the birth of Jesus. Now, this doctrine that we're going to talk about for Christians, if you're not a Christian here, welcome. We're so glad you're here. And I hope that even this doctrine would be so confounding to you because this is a distinctly Christian doctrine. This is what we believe. This is Jesus that's being spoken of here in, in the Gospel of John. And look what it says. The word, that's Jesus, became flesh and blood that you can feel and touch. Flesh and blood. And moved into the neighborhood. <laughs> that's the translation. Uh, another translation says, made his dwelling among us. Now, this is what's so explosive, right? Because most people, of course, intuitively, what they believed about God or the gods was that God is transcendent. God is other. God is not human. I mean, that's what it means to be God, that you're not human. But here's the explosive truth of Christianity. It's this belief that the God of the universe would send God the Son, Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and move into the neighborhood to live amongst us, to be one of us. 
And look at what it says. It says, we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one of a kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Now, this doctrine that we're talking about, about God in the flesh, it's called the incarnation. High five your neighbor and say incarnation. Incarnation, God in the flesh. We get words like carne asada from... <laughs> that was a bad joke. Sorry, God, if that was it. But, um, but like, I mean, meaty, fleshy, right? Like incarnation. I mean, this is unbelievable. Like a God that moved into the neighborhood that you can feel and touch and know. This is the incarnation. Jesus himself was someone who moves into the neighborhood, who actually comes and dwells and walks among us. Now, the people during the time of Nehemiah, the people that are commended for living presently within a city, here's what's being pointed out. It's this. It's that your physical presence matters. Your physical presence matters. The way that we flesh out our lives, the way that we live together. Now, here's the thing, right? Especially during the COVID season that we were in. I mean, um, studies now, of course, this is Monday morning quarterback, but the incredible mental health toll it took on the next generation to have been separated for so long and to not be having physical interactive uh, kind of interactions with, with others was incredibly detrimental to, to one's mental health and, and physical well-being. Now, what's so stunning about it is, of course, we had Zoom, though. We had technology. We had live streaming. We've got so many technological advancements, and yet the very real human need for physical contact, for being in person, it matters greatly. The incarnation, in the same way for us, the physical presence matters greatly. For instance, there's a difference, no matter how many times I might say to Avery, my seven-year-old daughter, on FaceTime, I love you, honey, I love you, I love you so much, Avery. Uh, no matter how many times I can say it, there's nothing replaces actually me being with her, looking her in the eye, her looking at me and saying, your nose hairs are too long, you know? <laughs> so TMI there, sorry. Uh, but, and then me being able to say to her, I love you, and to, to hug her and to hold her. Now, you and I, we all know that experience of, of how physical presence matters. And here, the people, during this time, the wall's been rebuilt, and there's a people that basically say, I'm willing to be physically present. I'm willing to incarnate in this world that we're looking to rebuild because this is what it means to be the people of God, to be physically present, to show up incarnation. Now, here's what's so fascinating, is that this idea of living within a city and making this choice. Um, one of the things, if you were to look throughout the scriptures about cities in general, it's just how significant cities are throughout scripture. And one of the reasons why is because cities can oftentimes be marked by two, these two different things. It's this. It's density as well as diversity. Um, cities are places that throughout history, human history, people have flocked to cities in dense ways. Uh, one person put it this way. Cities have more uh, image of God than anywhere else in the world. Um, and the reason why is because people flock to cities. This is just generally what happens. Now, this is not to say that God is absent from places like the Poconos or things like that. But this is rather just to say there's something about cities where the density of cities, where people flock to cities, 
There's something so special about being around people. Now, not only is density one marker of urban areas, but also diversity. Because so much human capital exists in a city like New York, it's a diverse expression of people that come from all over the world. And not only that, but it has a socioeconomic classes. It's got some of uh, the people who are most marginalized who need help. They flock to cities because they know that cities often have the kind of resources that can help them, that can help them get jobs and things like that. Now, of course, in today's setting, uh, arguments can be made that the middle class is being squeezed out of cities, but nonetheless, there's extraordinary diversity that happens in cities. Now, both of these markers um, of cities, New York City, I mean, let's be honest, we are the alpha city of all alpha cities. That's right. Let's go. Come on now. You know, people from Boston are like, no, no, Boston Red Sox, Boston Celtics. And we're like, come on. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we don't even need to talk about sports. We can just say, like, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't even matter. We're, we're, we're New York. That's it, right? Um, I hope you can agree with me. <laughs> All you Boston folks are like, no, the Patriots. I get it. I get it. But here's the thing, right? I mean, there's New York City in various lists, has the most disproportionate influence on what happens around the world. I mean, I remember eating at a McDonald's in the Philippines one year, and uh, as we're there, we're sitting, I, I hear Jay-Z, Empire State of Mind, coming on the loudspeakers, and everyone starts singing along in the Philippines. That's right, New York, that's what it's all about. I mean, New York is the alpha city of all alpha cities, and in many ways exhibits density and diversity in its fullest now, here's the thing. Here's what most, uh, here's a UN report that came in 2018. Look at what it says. Today, 55% of the world's population lives in urban areas. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, this is what's happening. People are just flocking to cities. Now, of course, the pandemic disrupted some of that, and some people started moving out of the city. But look at what happened. Or look at what the trend still indicates, is that a, a proportion that is expected to increase to 68% by 2050. In other words, 70% of the world's populations will be in megacities, or not in megacities, just in urban areas. But these megacities lead the way as it relates to culture in the world around us, including and maybe especially New York City. Now, here's what's so uh, interesting. Check out this book. There's a book that I often read. Whenever people come and visit the city and they're asking questions about the city, it's this book that I read called uh, Here is New York by E.B. White. Has anyone ever read this book before or heard about it? It's a small little book. It was written in 1948. And one of uh, the, the coolest descriptions, even reading it, um, this book that was written in 1948, you can see it, it has echoes of what's so true of New York today. Check this out. This is what E.B. White writes upon his observations of the city. There are roughly three New Yorks. There is first the New York of the man or woman who was born here, who takes the city for granted and accepts its size and its turbulence as natural and inevitable. Those are the natives of New York. Any natives here in the house, born and raised here? Let's go. Yes. Second, there is the New York of the commuter, the city that is devoured by locusts each day and spat out each night. Those are the folks from New Jersey or Connecticut. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. We're so glad you're here. Welcome to Hope, everyone. <laughs> That's second. But look, third, there is the New York of the person who was born somewhere else. Anyone born somewhere else? Outside of New York, yes, and came to New York in quest of something. Commuters give the city its title restlessness. Natives give it solidity and continuity, but the settlers give it passion and energy. Uh, 
I mean, isn't it true? Like you read this and you're like, yeah, that really does describe New York. But here's what I was thinking, right? If we were to talk about these, these three things, if we could go to the next slide, right? There's commuters, there's natives, and there's settlers. And isn't it true that this is what comprises the city? I'd actually like to add a category here um, to this list of three. It's this. It's tourists and consumers, now, some of you that live in Hell's Kitchen are like, yes, we know those people, right? Tourists and consumers. Now, of course, tourists are those who are just here for a little bit, and they're basically like, oh, I can't wait to go to New York, go visit the Met, go to Times Square, go to a show, uh, eat at Carmine's uh, in Times Square. Um, this is the second week in a row I've mentioned Carmine's in Times Square, <laughs> you know. <laughs> go to the Olive Garden in Times Square. <laughs> you know, like, uh, this is, and, and right, there's, there's, there's these tourists who come, and they're just like, oh, I, I can't wait to check out, you know, Magnolia's Bakery and get some bread pudding there, some banana pudding. I can't, can't wait to do this. Um, now, on one end, there are tourists who come, and they come to consume, right? They're just like, let me just suck everything I can out of New York and then peace out afterwards, right? And go back to my living, but I love New York, and I love visiting there. I mean, so many people around the world. Being one of the most popular tourist destinations in the world, that's what New York is. But I'd also like to liken that to consumers in some ways, because consumers are basically kind of have the same mindset, right? Let me just come into the city and suck all I can out of the city and then move out to Florida <laughs> or to wherever I can go and have more space for my life. The mentality is the same. I just come to consume. See, whereas these other three, at least there's a commitment to somehow being in proximity to the city. The, the, the mindset of a tourist or a consumer is, let me just get in there and get out when it comes to work. When it comes to work, this is what I want to do. I want to advance my career, make as much money as possible, put as much stuff down on my LinkedIn profile so that I can leverage that to another career or at least make enough money where I can now pursue what I really want to do. I mean, isn't that the mentality that so many New Yorkers come with, so many of the tourist consumers come with? It's let me get whatever I can out of my work. Or when it comes to love. This is a great place. I know New York is teeming with 20-somethings and 30-somethings and 40-somethings, and it's a great place to meet someone. Let me just meet the person who will become the love of my life. Uh, and then once we do that, we will then fall in love. We'll get married, and then we'll move to whichever set of in-laws we get along better with. I mean, like, that's, that's the dream. <laughs> and so all New York is, it's not a place to rebuild or to renew, it's a place to just get whatever I can out of the city. So many folks have that kind of mentality. Now, let me pause here. And I, like I mentioned earlier, there's this growing bifurcation between the, the upper class as well as the lower class in the city. And the middle class is getting squeezed out. I recognize it's incredibly difficult to live in the city. So there's no shade for those of you who plan on moving out or you're moving out or you've moved out uh, in your mind at least. There's no shade unless you're moving to Florida. And no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but at the end of the day, remember, like we talked about, like when, when the people covenant, they're making this decision. And so many of us, when it comes to our decision-making, as it relates to even the place that we will live and invest our lives, the way that we think about it is, oh, what's, gonna, what, what's the best place for me to advance? What's the best place for my own happiness? But remember last week we talked about when it came to covenanting with God, it was like this posture that would say, you know what, life is not about me. And so at the very least, if you're planning on moving out or if you want to move somewhere else, here's what I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting 
and encouraging, especially as you look to follow Jesus, is that the way you go about making this decision is not as a tourist or a consumer, but more so out of this disposition that says, at least that you will bring this to prayer before God and say, God, my heart wants to be aligned with your heart. More than it is about me and my happiness, it's about being part of giving my life to something bigger than myself. Now, that orientation of just the heart to say, God, you are the one that's on the throne. You are the one that I want to live for. So what I'm suggesting here, because obviously in a room like this, people will move in and out of the city. But what does it look like for each one of us to have this kind of posture where we say, at, at the very least, when it comes to where we end up, where we settle, where we volunteer to live, that at least that's a, there's a Godward disposition in it. Now, during the pandemic, so much digital ink was spilled about like how New York was going to fall and its demise. And if you recall, being the epicenter of COVID, it was such a difficult time. And so many folks moved out of the city. Uh, even in our church, 50% of our church moved away. I mean, it was, it was a really difficult time. Uh, and actually, there was uh, this one article that was posted in an opinion piece that talked about how New York was dead and it was never coming back again. And Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, he actually wrote uh, an opinion piece in the New York Times. And here's the, the opinion piece. Um, he wrote, so you think New York is dead? And then in parentheses it says, it's not. This is dated August 24th, 2020. Now, during this time, this was the time when people were like, what's going to happen in New York? Now, I, I would have read the entire article, but I thought I'd just read portions of it to you right now. Because I love what he writes. Look at what he says. He says, when I got my first apartment in Manhattan in the hot summer of 1976, there, were no, uh, there was no pooper scooper law, and the streets were covered in dog crap. I signed the rental agreement, walked outside, and my car had been towed. I still thought, this is the greatest place I've ever been in my life. Uh, Manhattan is an island off the coast of America. Are we part of the United States? Kind of. And this is one of the toughest times we've had in quite a while. But one thing I know for sure, the last thing we need in the thick of so many challenges is some putts on LinkedIn wailing and whimpering, everyone's gone, I want 2019 back. Um, now, if that was you on LinkedIn that posted that, I just, I, listen, there's no shade at you. I didn't, I'm just quoting from the article, okay? So anyhow, uh, he says he knows people who have left New York for Maine, Vermont, Tennessee, Indiana. I've been to all of these places many, many, many times over many decades with all due respect and affection. Are you kidding me? There's some other stupid thing in the article about bandwidth and how New York is over because everybody will remote everything. Guess what? Everyone hates to do this. Everyone hates uh, remote work. You know why? There's no other. Now, here's the thing. I realize some of you, maybe you're in a clash right now with your employer right now for wanting more work from home policies or whatever. Um, but the reality is, again, physical presence matters. Look at what he writes. You know why? There is no energy. Energy, attitude, and personality cannot be remoted through even the best fiber optic lines. That's the whole reason many of us moved to New York in the first place. Real, live, inspiring human energy exists when we coagulate together in crazy places like New York City. Feeling sorry for yourself because you can't go to the theater for a while is not the essential element of character that made New York the brilliant diamond of activity it will one day be again. You found a place in Florida? Fine. We know the sharp focus and restless, resilient, creative spirit that Florida is all about. <laughs> you, you think Rome is going away too? London, Tokyo, the East Village? They're not. They change, they mutate, they reform because greatness is rare and the true greatness that is New York City is beyond rare. It's unknown. 
unknown any place outside of New York City. The stupid virus will give up eventually, which it has. The same way you have. Again, he's writing to this person. <laughs> We're going to keep going with New York City if that's all right with you, and it will sure as hell be back. Because of all the real, tough New Yorkers who, unlike you, loved it and understood it, stayed and rebuilt it. Jerry Seinfeld, August 2020. Now, I mean, Seinfeld is writing from this posture of loving the city and for all it is. We're talking about this Christian perspective that's similar but different. You know, Seinfeld is talking, and some of you, you might even scoff at this and be like, well, Jerry Seinfeld has made millions of dollars, catapulted his career to lengthy heights in media as a result of living in this city. How dare he say things like that, challenging us in this certain kind of way. See, the Christian disposition is similar to Seinfeld in loving the city, but different for why. Now, of course, it's not only because New York is full of these resilient moments and these resilient places and all these ways in which creativity, I mentioned density, diversity are here. But throughout the history of the church, Christians have been known for loving the city. Um, there's actually a book by Rodney Stark, a sociologist at Baylor University, and he wrote this book called The Rise of Christianity, and he actually examines, and one of his, uh, his key projects in examining the history of the Christian church is, how in the world did the Christian church from the beginning, since Jesus resurrected from the grave, it was just this small group of people, maybe a thousand or so folks in the time of Jesus, who somehow, by the third, fourth century, was now five million strong, in the midst of persecution and difficulty, what in the world led to such exponential growth of the Christian movement when they were following this Jewish carpenter, no-name person named Jesus, when Rome had the strongest military might and all the authority and power in the world? What led to it? Well, one of the things he examined is he talks about these pivotal moments in the history of the, of, uh, kind of, uh, of the second century. And one of the pivotal moments was there was a massive plague that hit the region uh, in the Roman Empire in the second century. And so what happened when the plagues hit? Because when plagues hit, this is where density is, people start to leave the city, especially those who are well-to-do and have uh, the optionality of moving out or not. And people left the city, naturally, because the plagues hit. And yet there was a group that stayed. And what he outlines is that the people who stayed were Christians. And the Christians chose to stay because they wanted to serve in healing and feeding those who were sick and remained. And so how did the Christian movement grow in the middle, in these early centuries? It's through love. Loving the city and loving the people of the city enough that they would stay when everyone else was leaving. That's how. See, the people of God, throughout scriptures, God would always, you know, be telling the people about what it means to have a posture towards people and to cities where there's so much density and diversity. Check out Jeremiah chapter 29. In the Old Testament, look at what God writes to the people of God. And this is written to the people who are in exile. They're not even in their homeland. 
And check out what it says. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Now look at what it says. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. High five your neighbor and say, seek the peace and prosperity of the city. To which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I mean, this is extraordinary. God is actually telling the people of God, right? One would think that God is telling a people who are in exile, hey, listen, just look out for your own people. Like, you need to get whatever you can out of this season. Just be self-protective mode. Don't trust those around you and basically huddle up and create this other kind of community where all you care about is the people of Israel. <laughs> but God doesn't say that. God says, I want you to seek the peace and prosperity of the city, the whole city, even those who are different than you, those who might disagree with you, that you would love the city enough in this manner. Now, here's the thing. Why in the world would anyone do this? I mean, if you think about, like, your, your job and your, your boss or your coworkers, and you were to ask them why, if you were to tell them, oh, yeah, you should be investing in the city, giving of yourself for the sake of the city, most of them would be like, what are you talking about, dude? I'm just trying to get as much money as I can, get advanced in my career as much as possible. I'm just trying to live Live the dream where I could own a house in the Hamptons so I could go away there in the summertime. I mean, this is the dream. Why would anyone have the kind of posture whereby they might say, actually, the reason why I'm in the city is I've committed before God to live here. I've volunteered to live here. I've chosen to live here so that God and his ways might be known in the city. Why would anyone make that kind of decision? And why would even Christians, why would Christians make that kind of decision? Of course, people from outside the church, it does not make sense. Why would you give of your prayers, your money, your time, your energy for the sake of others for the city? Well, in Christian theology, here's what we believe about God. Not only do we believe that God moved into the neighborhood, the incarnation. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 13. It says this. It says, so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. See, this is what we believe about Jesus. This is what we believe about God. That the reason why Jesus came into the world was so that he would live and die on our behalf. And he would end up dying outside the city gate, shedding his blood for us. Now, why would Jesus do this? And this is what we believe in Christian theology. We believe that God cared enough about us and for us so closely and intimately that more than simply being this far-off God who speaks through thunderbolts, he would actually send his son in the flesh to live amongst us and to die on our behalf to show us just how deeply in love and committed God is for us, for you, for me. And so Jesus would actually die outside the city gates so that we who live in the city can be a people who now can, we don't look to the city for our own gain, our selfish pursuit, our happiness, our own success, but instead we've found our success, our happiness, our fullest joy in a God whose love for us is so real and tangible and personal 
that now we can actually begin to live for something bigger than ourselves. And we can actually embody this same kind of incarnational love towards others and towards the city around us. Here's what the early church understood. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Look at what it says. It says, you are the body of Christ. You are the people now to take this message of love and sacrifice and healing and hope to the greatest city in the world. To be a people who when the rest of the folks are leaving, to be a people who say, God, before you, are you calling us to stay and to stay and be part of rebuilding the city in a manner in which before God, we might be a people who are marked by the love and sacrifice of the one we call our Lord for the sake of the city.